Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the Holiday Cast. I'm Josh, and Chuck is here, and Jerry's here, and there's a million elves surrounding us and making us kind of <laughs> nervous because they're just looking at us and not saying anything. And this is Stuff You Should Know, the holiday episode. The last recording of the year for us. That's great. And I'm so excited about that, and you and I love our jobs, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter how much you love your job. Uh, vacation is better. Yeah, <laughs> some vacay is better. Yeah, agreed. And this is going to be our longest Christmas break yet, and we're both super excited to do that, but we're even more excited to share with you another set of, it's getting thin, but another set of great stories for Christmas. I disagree. I feel reinvigorated. I think really? we hit the we hit rock bottom two years ago. Okay. And and we've been coming back ever since then. I feel great about this one. Did you really look at two years ago? Was it bad? No, no. I just I okay. remember it. It was not. It was not great. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I'm, I need to be invigorated by you then, because every year I keep thinking, oh boy, have like that's a lot of years to be doing six to eight Christmas stories. Like, how many are out there? There's plenty, man. We're, we're, we'll never run out. Come over here. I'll invigorate you right now. Okay. Woo. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> humana, humana, humana. Uh, okay, we're going to start out with your pick, one of your picks. Yes, um, this is actually from uh, a listener named Alexandra Stock, or Stoke, I'm not sure. I bet it's Stock. She wrote in for several years with a bunch of really good ideas, but she really, really was pushing for the chestnut one. And I understand why now, because um, it's a really interesting story, the, the, the story behind why chestnuts used to be basically like the, the, the symbol of uh, Christmas in America for a couple hundred years until it just suddenly stopped being that way. Um, and let's talk about that. Yeah, and big thanks to USA Today uh, for a great article from Kate Morgan. I wonder if that's the same Kate Morgan that writes for How Stuff Works. Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. I bet it is. At any rate, uh, if you've ever heard the Christmas song, not mm-hmm. a Christmas song, but the Christmas song <laughs> yeah, from crooner Nat King Cole, you might not even know that was the title of uh, what's more commonly referred to as chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Yeah. Uh, this was recorded in 1946. It was a very big hit. One of the biggest Christmas songs of all times. Uh, and I guess it sort of acted like everyone around was in America was sitting around roasting chestnuts, mm-hmm. but I've never seen a chestnut nor roasted or tasted one. And that's because by that point, there were no chestnut trees in the United States anymore. No, very sadly, uh, a blight started to spread, I think, starting in 1904. And within 40 years, almost every single American chestnut tree was dead. And how many um, were there? There were a lot of them. At one point, uh, half of the trees in the forests on the East Coast, from Maine to Alabama, as far west over to Kentucky and Ohio, were chestnuts. Half of the trees in those in that stretch were chestnuts, and I think there were uh, as many as four billion of them. So that's a lot of chestnut trees, and that's a lot of chestnuts. 
And that's a lot of roasting because people used to eat these things. Uh, the chestnuts themselves were uh, small. They're about acorn sized, And they had a, a very obviously nutty flavor, but very sweet and carrot-like is what I've seen when you just eat them out of the shell. Yeah. Uh, but then you roast them up a little bit. Things got even nuttier, and they got a little sweeter, as things often often happen when they roast. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was like a American and a, especially a Christmas staple, where on street corners in cities all over the United States and the Eastern Seaboard, there were chestnut roasters serving up bags and bags of this stuff. Yeah, Kate Morgan puts it really, really great. She says, for more than a century, it was the smell of Christmas in America. Ooh, nice. I even wrote gosh after that in my notes. (laughs) But it's sad. I mean, think about that. There was this amazing tradition that dated back easily to the the, um, 18th century, if not even a little earlier. In North America, um, once Europeans came over and discovered chestnuts that I'm quite sure the indigenous peoples were well aware of for long before that. Of course. And they said, hey— these are pretty amazing. And they made it not just part of Christmas, but you could find chestnuts in dishes oh, in, yeah. in America and like throughout the year. But something about roasting chestnuts at Christmas time was was very Christmassy. Um, and it's like you said, Chuck, we're bereft. Those of us alive today who were born after the mid-40s have never tasted a chestnut the way that it's supposed to taste in America because the stuff we got now, it's not, it's not holding up. No, they're importing chestnuts, uh, I think largely probably for the Christmas season, even though you can probably get them, uh, I imagine, all year round. But uh, they're mainly imported from Korea or Italy or China, apparently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these are not the American chestnuts. They uh, apparently do not taste like they taste. Apparently, they don't taste that great at all. Uh, the way this one person that was interviewed in here described them was uh, this is uh, Libby O'Connell. Uh, mm-hmm. who's a food historian, wrote a book called The American Plate, colon, A Culinary History in 100 Bites. Uh, but Libby describes them as sort of like a soft potato and <laughs> right. bland and not like this crunchy thing that you would think of when you think of eating a roasted chestnut. No, and in a horrible ironic twist, those chestnuts that we're eating today in America like schmoes come from the very same tree that was imported to Long Island in Ugh. the late 19th century that started the blight that killed off the American chestnut. Uh, you won't catch me buying those then. It's terrible. Luckily, there is a glimmer of hope. <clears throat> there is a group called the American Chestnut Foundation. Since 1983, they've planted at least 73,000 test trees. They've been trying really hard to crossbreed American chestnuts with Asian chestnuts so that they'll be um, uh, immune to the blight, Mm -hmm. but they'll still produce those American chestnut chestnuts. They think maybe in a decade, maybe a little longer, we will be able to experience the Christmas chestnuts like they used to have back in the days of Nat King Cole. That's right. So if you live in North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, or Pennsylvania— then your state is growing those test chestnut trees, and uh, we all have our fingers crossed. A lot is riding on this. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well put, Chuck. <laughs> so shall we climb on our sleigh and hop over to the next roof? Yes, let's. And we'll have Jerry give us a little musical interlude in the meantime.
I gotta tell you, the songs Jerry puts in here, are so, it's my favorite part of this whole thing. I like us talking, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But the, the holiday trimming that, that Jerry puts on it is just magnificent. And you know what you're not going to hear? Oh, yeah, what? Ads. That's right. We, we, we wall this one in the Halloween episode off every year and say, don't come near my episode. That's right. And I think it's a great tradition, if you ask me. I think it is, too. There's nothing like leaving money on the table. All right, so you dug up some cool stuff along with uh, Sean Flynn of Forbes magazine Mm -hmm. on some very special places all over the world that kind of have a a cottage Christmas industry Mm -hmm. in one way or another and for different reasons. Yeah, there's places that say, this is Santa Claus's home. Another place says, no, this is Santa Claus's home. (laughs) Yeah. Another place says, this is Santa Claus's summer home. Um, and Or other places are just like, we're not saying that. We're just celebrating Christmas year-round. <laughs> That's right. One of them is called uh, Rovaniemi, Finland, where in Finland they know Santa Claus is Yulipuki. That's in Finnish. <laughs> I've seen rare exports enough times that I'm pretty sure that's how they pronounce it. <laughs> What's rare exports? It's a Finnish uh, Christmas movie that came out five, six, seven years ago. Oh, yeah? Yes, but they envision Santa Claus as like a, a demon, not a not a friendly elf, and they uh, have okay. to basically capture him, and it's really interesting. It's a great movie. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Yolopuki. <laughs> uh, so in Yol... Oh, wait, not in Yolopuki. That's, that's Santa Claus. What am I saying? Yeah. In Rovaniemi. <laughs> okay. They are one of the ones that say, no, this, this is where Santa was born. It's the official home of Santa. Mm-hmm. We have the Santa Christmas house right over there. You can go visit it. Uh, we have a post office here where it is chock full of letters from children all over the world. And we even have a toy factory. So we lay claim. I, I looked at pictures of Rovaniemi and enchanting understates that place. Agreed. It's amazing. It looks pretty pretty sweet. So that's one place. They, they don't necessarily say Santa lives here now, but they say Santa was born here. Yeah. They've got a contender over in Norway called Drubak. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, yeah, you think Santa was born in Finland? Wrong. He was born in Norway under a rock outside of this town. <laughs> Nothing is more fun and disturbing than Scandinavian folktales. <laughs> it seemed like they always involved something really weird, like, right. like Santa was born under a rock. A few hundred years ago. And that rock is right over there. Uh, they also, of course, have their own post office uh, where kids send their lists. So kids are they're sending their lists to different places all over the world where I guess it depends on where your parents' allegiances lie. Yeah, but I think all of these um, post offices, like in Drubach and Rovaniemi and the other places we'll talk about, know where to forward them onto the North Pole to, so they get to Santa. Right. They're a mere way station. Right. Exactly. What about Alaska? Isn't there a, a North Pole, Alaska? There is. Um, there's a place called the Santa Claus House in North Pole, Alaska, and it is um, supposedly St. Nick's home. I think it's one of his many ho- homes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and it's really cute. It's pretty kitschy looking. Uh, there's a lot of strange paintings uh, outside of it. Um, but one of the other things that they have are light poles that are shaped like candy canes. Gotta have that's, them. Yes, that stretch along um, roads and streets called Santa Claus Lane, mm-hmm. St. Nicholas Drive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one, I'm wondering if this is a nod to the vacation movies, Holiday Road. Oh, yeah. That was uh, Lindsay Buckingham. Was it? 
it may have been Fleetwood Mac, R.I.P. Christine McVie, who just passed away in real time. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah, I know. It, it's pretty neat to see how many people are like, this is a big deal. Yeah, very big deal. I was very sad. Listen to it all night. No. Oh. But but that's not what this is about. No, this is about this is, Santa Claus's sounds around the world. Snowman Lane in North Pole, Alaska. Yeah, so North Pole, Alaska, another place that says this is where Santa lives. There's a place in Indiana called Santa Claus, Indiana, and they say, no, no, this is where Santa Claus lives. I can understand the the distinction here because Indiana is much further south than Alaska (laughs) or Norway or Finland. Yeah. So this is possibly Santa Claus's, like, summer home, one of his summer homes. Yeah, this seems like the KOA campground of kitschy Santa places. Yeah. For because sure. they do have a campground. They have a Lake Rudolph there mm-hmm. uh, with a campground, and they they pour it on pretty thick there in Indiana with a, <laughs> a light show that tells the story of Rudolph and his travails, and they have a Santa's Candy Castle. Yes. It's, it's, you know, they've made a—I'm glad you included links to these places. You should go look them up. It's, it's pretty fun to look at. Santa's Candy Castle was sponsored by the Curtis Candy Corporation, who make Butterfinger and Baby Ruth— and they they opened this place in 1935 to really kind of give Santa Claus, Indiana, a boost. Of course. There's also a Santa Claus museum that would be worth visiting. I'd love to go visit that someday. Yeah. You get in the Christmas spirit, right? Yeah. Another thing that will get you in the Christmas spirit in July, even, is the 81-foot-wide uh, star over Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. That's right. That's on South Mountain. It was built in 1937. And apparently in 1937, it was a real uh, sort of sign of hope during the Great Depression. Right. And I believe that the city itself was founded on Christmas Eve there in Bethlehem in 1741. So I'm sure, I mean, that's why they got the name, right? Yeah, for sure. And they make no claim whatsoever on Santa Claus having a home there or having been born there. They're just fans, really big fans, you know? (laughs) Uh, and then finally, I guess Santa has his beach condo, because mm-hmm. who wouldn't if you were Santa and you could just, you know, he basically prints money every year, you know? Sure. Uh, this is, where Where exactly is this in Florida? This is inland, um, kind of along the St. John's River. So rather beach, he would have like, this is his airboat um, swamp getaway. Okay. Give me a, a north or a south, though. Is it south? South of what? South, South Florida. Is it, is it south it's, of uh, Gainesville? <laughs> it's east of Gainesville. It's due east of Orlando. Okay, so I got you. I got you. So right there in the center of the state, Florida. Yeah, pretty much. The center right. Florida is very misleading because it takes as long to drive to Miami from Atlanta as it does to drive to New York, which seems yes, hard to believe, but it's true. But to drive from... Um, like Orlando to Tampa, it takes a, an hour and a half, basically. It's crazy. Right. <laughs> you can get to so many places in Florida in two or three hours. It's yeah, just, yeah. just nuts. Right. But from tip to top to bottom, it's a long way. Yes. Agreed. Uh, but Christmas Florida uh, used to be Fort Christmas because it was a fort. It was an army stockade. It was built in 1837. And they said, hey, I guess we got this place with this name. And we got a post <laughs> office that kids are going to want that postmark. That's right. Once again, from Christmas, on stamped onto their letter. So that seems to be the main industry now. Yeah. Is there a post office? It's it, it's true. And they keep it decorated year-round to really attract people. And you it works. To. Yeah, I love it. For sure. 
So those are some places you could visit if you were like, I really want to feel closer to Santa this year, and I feel like doing some traveling. There's a great list for you, everybody. All right, and now we are going to talk about uh, the two worst Christmas songs in history. <laughs> oh, my. You might be right, though, now that I think about it. I hadn't hadn't considered that, but I think you're right. I mean, there are certainly some annoying, like, pop rock versions of Christmas songs, mm-hmm. but it does not get much worse than Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer and All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. Uh, I will say this. Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer is so infuriatingly catchy. It's been <laughs> stuck in my head all day, and I didn't listen to it. Oh, wow. That's hilarious. Just from reading it and doing this research, I've been walking around bashing my head against the wall all day. (laughs) It is catchy. It's what people in the corporate world would call sticky. It's very sticky. Um, And it's actually way older than I thought. I I think of that song as firmly in the mid-'80s. Yeah. But apparently it was written all the way back in 1977 by a songwriter from Dallas named Randy Brooks. And depending on who you ask, either his grandmother left him out of her will or— I don't buy that. He, no, I don't either. Uh, I think it was a joke yeah. by whoever said it. And then um, the, the likelier one that I think Randy Brooks has said is that he was just thinking about those country songs, he, as he put it, where they drag you into love with the character and then kill them off in the third verse. <laughs> yeah. And how he was kind of sick of that that kind of uh, songwriting, and he wanted to kind of make light of it. So he started thinking about Grandma being killed off. And even worse, what about Grandma dying at Christmas? And he started wondering, like, exactly how would Grandma die at Christmas? And it hit him like a flash. <laughs> yeah, it, it strikes me that Brooks may have been sort of trying to get on the coattails of, like, Ray Stevens, uh, mm. who was a, a country sort of— he made he wrote some serious songs, but he was kind of known for novelty and joke songs. And he was like the was American a, Yakov Smirnov. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, he definitely looked like him now that I think right. about it. Yeah. But it was sort of a thing back then in country music where you could write some songs that were humorous and they could end up being big hits. So uh, Brooks would apparently do some of this. Apparently, uh, did you mention the Johnny Walker thing? No, I didn't. Uh, supposedly he was headed to bed with his guitar and quote his co-writer Johnny Walker Black, <laughs> and and wrote this song, which you know if you've never, uh, certainly that chorus will stick in your head. But uh, how's it go, I, Chuck? I, I'm not going to sing it, but I don't remember any of the words. I knew Grandma got run over just from the chorus, but when you look uh-huh. at the lyrics, yeah, it is uh, it's very dark. Uh, Grandma's <laughs> drunk on eggnog, mm-hmm. is like leaving the party, and they're like, "No, don't go, Grandma." And she's like, I need to get my meds mm-hmm. and goes to get medication drunk and gets run over by Rudolph. And they say they find her dead in the snow with footprints on her forehead yeah, and claws, as in Santa Claus, mm-hmm. marks on her back. That's pretty clever. What else? Um, so the family celebrates Christmas dressed in black because they're mourning. And they have, like, a whole conundrum in front of them. They were like, should we just open Grandma's presents or (laughs) should we send them back? And then the song goes over and focuses on Grandpa, who's handling the whole thing really, really well. he's having a party. He's hanging out watching (laughs) football on TV and drinking beer and playing cards and seems to be okay about this whole thing. 
Yeah, so that's the essence of the song. Uh, like I said, Brooks had made a name sort of, I, it sounds like regionally, um, writing these Ray Stevens-esque country songs and mm-hmm. uh, was performing it out one night when a, a married duo, married at the time, just uh, divorced a handful of years later, uh, named Elmo and Patsy mm-hmm. were in the audience and they were recording artists and they said, hey, can we record your song? Uh, they they weren't huge stars, but I looked them up and they were they were pretty well known at the time in that in the country music scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dr. Elmo went on to be a veterinary uh, doctor of veterinary medicine, which I thought was interesting. I saw that too. Yeah. So um, uh, Randy Brooks said, "Sure, you guys can record my song." And they actually started pressing their own copies of this. I guess a single like a forty-five mm-hmm. of Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. So this was. I saw they met at a Hyatt in Lake Tahoe during a blizzard, and that's where the whole thing happened. <laughs> but the the upshot of it is um, by Christmas Day 1979, one of these singles had made its way into the hands of a DJ in San Francisco. And this DJ played it on the radio for the first time. And uh, it apparently was very polarizing from the outset. Some people called the radio station and said, don't ever play that record again. (laughs) Other people said, like, where can I get a copy of that record? And uh, year by year, it just kind of slowly started to spread around the country. And then in 1983, that was the year it just absolutely blew up. Yeah. I mean, that's why you remember it as mid-80s, because in 83, it became a big, big hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, four-ish plus years after it was written and a few years after it was first recorded. So that's, it's definitely, or I guess actually more like uh, six years after it was written and four years after it was recorded. Yeah. Very and unusual. Uh, apparently it got a big boost because Elmo and Patsy had gone to the trouble of paying for a video to be made just in time for MTV, and mm-hmm. MTV put it in heavy rotation, and it ended up being the number one song on the Billboard holiday charts for several years in a row, and it spawned a whole bunch of stuff. It went gold. It eventually went platinum. There's toys, ugly sweaters. There's a mm. cartoon based on it, <laughs> scented candles. Um, Randy Brooks said there was a hot chocolate mix. Couldn't find that to corroborate <laughs> it. Uh, and then there's a Christmas theme podcast I found um, that seems to have released the most recent episode last year, um, but they have 29 episodes under their belt. Grandma got run over by a podcast. <laughs> uh, the, as far as the two singers, they got divorced. I think the next year in 1984 or so. So, yeah, maybe all that success went to their head. Yeah, that'll do it. I've seen that movie. It could happen to you. <laughs> uh, can I read the last line? You wrote this last line, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad run for a man whose co-writer is Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, huh? Oh, that was great. That very much tickled me. So are we going to put a musical interlude in between these two, or are we going to head right over to All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth? Let's just head right over there. Uh, okay. Big thanks. I got most of this stuff. Uh, There's a bunch of histories of this song, but the most thorough was from the Greenville Theater in Greenville, South Carolina, at greenvilletheater.org. And they, they do uh, Christmas plays, and I think they perform this every year. Uh, it will have been ended by the time this comes out. But mm-hmm. uh, support local theater and support the Greenville, South Carolina theater. Yeah, and I found it confusing. At first, I was like, what does Greenville Theater in South Carolina have to do with this? Because this whole thing took place in at Smithtown Elementary in Smithtown, New York. Yeah, Long Island. 
Yeah, where a man named Donald Gardner and his wife Doris Gardner were music teachers at Smithtown Elementary. And Donald Gardner was um, coming, trying to come up with a song for the second graders at one point, and he noticed that they were talking amongst themselves and kept saying, like, all I want for Christmas is, all I want for Christmas is, and that's kind of a phrase that they used. And then at some point, I think Donald Gardner told a joke, and all the children started laughing, and he noticed something very significant about those kids that inspired him. <laughs> uh, they did, and he actually put a number, thanks to the Washington Post, I know the actual statistic <laughs> is 16 out of the 22 children in the classroom were missing their front teeth. <laughs> uh, the front tooth thing is funny when you have a kid. My, my daughter is pretty late on her teeth, mm -hmm. uh, losing her baby teeth. Mm -hmm. So she still has those cute little top baby teeth. Uh, but sometimes you'll see like a, as a kid as young as like four and five that have these giant honking front teeth. Because, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, those adult teeth come in, sometimes they don't fit in the mouth so well. Yeah, no, true. But it's always funny to see her friends at school, like a lot of them have those big teeth. She's still got her little teeth. But losing the two front teeth is a big deal. I remember I lost my front two in pretty quick succession, and we talked about, uh, and I even put it on my Instagram when my mom dressed me up as Huckleberry Finn mm -hmm. for the photo shoot, uh, which you can find at Chuck the... Uh, at Chuck the Podcaster on my Instagram. Mm -hmm. You have to dig back because uh, I'm not going to repost it or anything like that. But losing the front teeth is a big deal. All these kids had their teeth out, and that struck Donald Gardner as very funny, and apparently he whipped up this song, you can tell, in about 30 minutes. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing, though. He was also, like, he, he was um, a music teacher. He also was really good at writing music as well. He went on to write um, songs for musical textbooks, among other things. But um, the song initially was just rele relegated to Smithtown Elementary for the first several years. Um, but it became a, a tradition that they still carry on today. At Smithtown Elementary, they have a, a holiday sing-along, and um, invariably they play or sing, All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. Um, but it really kind of blew up in 1948 when it was first recorded and kind of hit. I think that's the impression I have after Spike Jones and his City Slickers recorded it. Yeah, there was a, a lady right before this who heard Gardner sing this thing at a teacher's conference and said, that's really catchy. Why don't you meet my boss at uh, Whitmark Music Company? They <laughs> published the song, and then, like you said, Spike Jones and his City Slickers put it out, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a number one hit in 1949. Doesn't get much bigger. And it got covered most um, notably by the Chipmunks. Yeah, that was a Chipmunk song, wasn't it? It was. Man, the Chipmunks' Christmas songs are great. Yeah, we, we listen to a lot of Christmas music over the course of December. Mm -hmm. uh, I love it until I don't. Right. But um, Emily, she dives in right after Thanksgiving. And in fact, wanted to play it before Thanksgiving this year. I was like, babe, it's come on. Too early. Just too early. Can we at least wait till after Thanksgiving? So yeah. we haven't put on the chipmunks yet, but that's always a fun one in the house. My favorite of all time is Fronte and Tyker. They're dueling pianos. I haven't heard that one. Oh, man. Good stuff? Yes. Yes. It is just, I, I mean, I'm sure it's nostalgic for me because I grew up on that, but 
I, I don't, I can't imagine anybody would hear it and be like, this is terrible. What's like, it called? Like, it's really great. Ferrante, F-E-R-R-A-N-T-E, and Tiker, T-E-I-C-H-E-R. And they actually did the theme to Midnight Cowboy, too. They were really accomplished uh, musicians. But they would both play grand pianos. That was, like, their thing. And their take on Christmas songs with two grand pianos yeah. at once is really, really something to hear. Well, that's what I will try and do most times is put on... Uh, like Christmas piano solo stuff to keep from hearing oh. the bad pop music. So I'm You're all over this. You're going to love them. Yeah. Yeah. That and a little Mannheim steamroller, and I'm all set. <laughs> Stirring stuff. All right. I think it's sleigh time, right? It is. Let's sleigh uh, on over to something else with the musical interlude. So, Chuck, um, we've got a little shorty here that we're going to squeeze in about peppermint. Because if you stop and think about it, I can't think of a taste, especially now that chestnut trees are all dead, (laughs) um, that is associated with Christmas more than peppermint, you know? Yeah. Uh, You might get those little peppermints on the way out of a restaurant, but aside from that, you're not going to be tasting a lot of peppermint, I don't think, outside of December. No, and there's a, a writer named Sam Worley for Epicurious who kind of rattles off some good examples. Like there's a bunch of mochas in Starbucks that uses it. Sure. There's ice cream treats called mm-hmm. Frosty Trees that I looked up. I was not aware of Frosty Trees, and now I really want a Frosty Tree. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had one? No. Is it like a, a hand pie? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, but in the shape of a Christmas tree made of peppermint ice cream. Okay, a frozen hand pie. So, So the peppermint is... It's kind of the unofficial flavor of Christmas. And uh, Worley asks a pretty good question, like, what, you know, why? How did that happen? He ascribes it to peppermint candy canes. I think that's a pretty good case. But I also think you could make a case that peppermint is like a cool blast of winter in your mouth. Oh, yeah. So I could see just from that as well being associated with it. Yeah, totally. It's not like it tastes like, you know, broiled liver. (laughs) <laughs> no. Boy, that would be imagine the world if that was the taste of Christmas. Oh, uh as the story goes, and I found this in a bunch of different places and Sam Morley kind of helped to verify it at Epicurious, mm-hmm. but um as the story goes, and certainly in the book The Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets, there was a German choral master mm-hmm. uh in Cologne, Germany in the sort of latish 17th century who had some rowdy German kids at a live nativity and was like, this is getting out of hand. Every time these kids come in, all they're doing is cutting up. So can I get something, uh, Mr. Local Candy Maker, like a candy that will last for an hour or so Mm -hmm. (laughs) and keep them busy? And voila, the candy cane. Right, because nothing settles kids down like a sugar stick. (laughs) Yeah. But that's how it came up. And apparently because of that link to the nativity, that's the reason a candy cane is curved. It's supposed to replicate a a shepherd's staff or echo it, I guess, like that. Yeah, and I think originally they were only white and the red stripes came a little later. Uh, And I think, you know, it's funny. You think of peppermint as like red and white, but that's – I think that's probably strictly coloring, right? Yeah, peppermint is – I mean, it's, it's a lot like spearmint. It looks very green and leafy. Yeah. Um, and it's apparently indigenous to the Middle East and Europe. Um, and it was used as like a, a, a medicine for a really long time. But yeah, I, I can't imagine peppermint as anything but red and white stripe too. That's what we know it as. I'm, I am not a big peppermint guy, but I'll, 
I'll munch on a little candy cane every now and then for nostalgia's sake. Oh, sure. I like the fruity kinds, though, more than anything. Oh, like the rainbow-colored? Mm-hmm. What about the big, giant, miniature baseball bat peppermint candy canes that you would get as a kid? That's a little ostentatious for me. Do you remember those, though? Sure. They were like uh, like billy clubs. <laughs> they were. And if you had an older brother, they were probably used like a billy club against you. Although not Scott. Scott would never do something like that. He would never do that. He he, he would he would lick his into a uh, vampire-killing spear. <laughs> right. And just drive it right through the back of your knee. That's right. Um, so here's a little fact for you. you. You can bust out at your next Christmas party or holiday gathering. The candy cane was invented about 200 years before it became peppermint flavor. It was just kind of... Plain yeah. sugar flavor up to that point. Yeah, like uh, Lick'em Stick. Yeah, I, I I love those as well. All right, that, that uh, sleigh is calling our name, my friend. Let's get in. The seat's still warm. Gross. Oof, sorry. I wish I had all that broiled liver. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Man alive. I thought with the open air of the sleigh, it might not really hit your nostrils too bad, but... No, Christmas is ruined now. I was mistaken. <laughs> so speaking of Christmas, how about uh, Elvis? How about him? So you dug something up about um, Elvis and, and Christmas. Apparently the two went hand in hand. And if you yeah. stop and think about Elvis, I am not at all surprised that, totally. that, that this particular season was like the end all be all to him. Yeah, Elvis was very into his family and his friends, uh, very into just sort of home and America and uh, just a well-grounded Tennessee drug addict. <laughs> <laughs> right, I was about to say, really into Benzedrine. Uh, but he was way into Christmas, and I have been to Graceland two times. I went once regular, and I went once during Christmas. And oh, you show off. It is really lovely. I, I would recommend going not at Christmas. It's sort of like... Uh, if you've ever been to the Biltmore House in Asheville, mm -hmm. I, I find that the regular tour is better than the Christmas because it's so over, overdone Christmas. Oh, it, yeah. It kind of gets in the way a little bit of just the regular beauty of both of these places. I see. But Elvis did it up for Christmas. Um, colored lights everywhere, uh, six eight-foot Christmas trees out front, blue lights up that long driveway. Uh, it's funny. They call it a mansion. Graceland was not that big. Uh, every time people go to Graceland for the first time, they're always like, huh, this is it? <laughs> yeah, I remember thinking that. But it's a fun visit. And you should, I mean, you and Yumi should definitely go at Christmas if you haven't been. It, it's If you've seen it regular, then you should mm -hmm. go at Christmas. Yeah, we saw it regular style, not yeah. peppermint style. Right. <laughs> you said that he lined uh, his house with blue lights. I just find that so wonderful. Like, yes, plain white lights are good. Yeah. Even multicolored lights are good. But something about blue lights at yeah. Christmas uh, are just they just they really kind of make it more Christmassy to me for some reason. Totally, and that was sort of the style back then before everyone thought like the only thing you could do was classy white lights. Right, exactly. I know you like your colored lights. Yeah, no, I love the big fat multicolored bulbs yeah. for sure. But something about the small blue lights too. I, I'm kind of my tastes have evolved into that. I think. Uh, so we have a quote here from uh, the Memphis Press Scimitar. In 1966, where Elvis said, it really is the best season of the year, man. <laughs> the Christmas carols, the trees, and lights just grab you. There's something about Christmas and being home I just can't explain. 
Maybe he's being with family and friends. Time to read and study. <laughs> and of course, snowball fights and the sleigh rides and, you know, just home. Beautiful. <laughs> that was wonderful, Elvis. Yeah, I think he did a great job describing it. So you can imagine that Elvis, as he was, and as rich as he was, uh, and as much as he liked Christmas, he really overdid it with presents. Um, usually employees got big fat cash bonuses. Um, friends and family would get anything from like jewelry to cars uh, to dogs. He gave a girlfriend a poodle once. Um, he, he just really liked to, to do it up. Um, and apparently between 1954 and 1976, uh, he celebrated 23 Christmases at, at Graceland. Whenever he could, he would make his way home and, and spend the holidays at Graceland. Uh, and more often than not, he was, he was able to. That's right. And we know this because of the book Elvis, colon, Day by Day by Ernst Jorgensen and Peter Gorelnik. Gorelnik. I think you got it the second time. I think so. But uh, they, they went year by year and it sounds like day by day. Uh, but we're going to go over a handful of these years that are notable. Uh, in 54, mm -hmm. uh, this is before Elvis was a big famous star, uh, and his family lived in a little apartment on Alabama Street. And just the week before that, Elvis made his first sort of musical appearance at the Louisiana Hayride radio program. <laughs> a few days after Christmas, he ended up playing a club in Houston, and his career started uh, on its way, basically. Yeah, but 1956 was his breakout year. Get this. He had 17 songs on the Billboard 100 that year. Crazy. And three of them were number one in yeah. 1956. So 1957, he had bought Graceland, and this is his first Christmas at Graceland. Uh, but it, it was um, ruined by the U.S. military. <laughs> That's right. A few days before Christmas, he got his draft notice. And on Christmas Eve, he uh, asked for a deferment. And got it and pushed that by just a few months. Uh, oh, actually, a year and a few months. Um, pushed his deferment to March 20th, 1958. Yeah, that's still just a few months. Oh, okay, yeah. That's how years work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're going to make me cough. What else happened in 1958? Oh, well, his mother died. Um, it was his first uh, Christmas without his mother. I'm sure that was rather sad. It was. Uh, it was also uh, a Christmas that he spent in, in uh, Germany because he was stationed there during his military service. So he probably was not very happy in Christmas 1958. He's trying to make the best of it. Not a blue light to be found in Germany, and his, his mom was missing. So <laughs> not the best Christmas of all time. Uh, 59 was his first with Priscilla. Uh, but you mentioned the girlfriend who got the French poodle. Mm -hmm. um, he had a girlfriend at the time named Anita Wood, and he sent Anita the French poodle while he was canoodling in Germany with Priscilla. Mm -hmm. But by 1966, he said, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make an honest man out of myself. And he proposed to, to Priscilla on Christmas Eve, which now I understand that's a super Elvis thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, apparently between 1967 and 1973, there wasn't a whole lot going on, just happy, normal <laughs> holidays, uh, because we pick up again in 1974. Yeah, and this was, you know, the last few years of Elvis's life are well documented as not being great for his health. Mm -hmm. uh, he was having some health problems in 74 <laughs> during Christmas. And so to pick his spirits up, I think, he flew in a gospel backup group called Voice uh, a few times in and out of Memphis just so they could sing with him at Graceland. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
What about the last one? Why are you leaving that to me? I'll take it then. All so right. this is the year I was born. I've always been convinced that I am the reincarnation of Elvis. <laughs> 76 is the last Christmas of um, of Elvis's life. Um, he apparently, it says that he had a bizarre Las Vegas engagement. Was that the, the very famous, like, Vegas f- fat Elvis? <laughs> well, sure. In 76, absolutely. Okay, so then that that happened right before Christmas then? Yeah, but there was – I can't remember the incident, uh, but there was one concert in particular that kind of went off the rails. Okay. It sounds like it was this Las Vegas one. Yeah, so, I think I think it's the one where, like, he couldn't remember lyrics and he was sweaty and it was just oh, it was boy. a bad scene. That's not good. So um, that was his last show before Christmas. I guess he went and recuperated, and then two days after he started up another tour at Wichita State. Um, and then six and a half months later he died. Where, Chuck? On the toilet at Graceland. Right. Well, I was just going to say at Graceland, <laughs> but yes. Yeah. You can't go up there in his in his personal quarters, as you know. No, totally. Can't go up those stairs at Graceland. So that was Elvis and Christmas in the blue lights there. I love that they were like, all right, Elvis, let's, you got one more tour in you. Let's, let's launch it at Wichita State <laughs> University. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> Where all the best tours are kicked off. Uh, all right, should we finish up with a, a, a boozy recipe like we like to do? I think we should, but first, how about a musical interlude from Jerry? Okay, Chuck, I don't know if we had a boozy recipe the last couple of years, so it's time to bring it back. And this one, anyone can make. You can make it with your eyes closed. You can make it with your feet. You can make it very easily. If you're, You could have your 8-year-old child make it for you if you wanted to. It's just that easy. But what's interesting about it, it's called moose milk, and it's associated um, exclusively with the Canadian military. That's right. Uh, apparently, all of the militaries in Canada, uh, the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and their moose patrol, mm-hmm. they all claim, uh, I, I guess, ownership or at least uh, claim to have written the recipe. Mm-hmm. But we do know that regardless of who did it, it was uh, a drink that was concocted back in World War II mm. and has become just very, uh, very customary drink to have in Canada. I think certainly for the military, but I think all the way around Canada, right? Yeah, especially on Christmas and New Year's Day. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of different things you can do. Uh, there's a lot of different ingredients. As you'll you'll get the gist of it from this, and you can kind of let your imagination run wild. And that's kind of what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make it to taste using as much or as little as, as you want. Um, but our friends at Atlas Obscura found a recipe from the Cape Breton News, and um, they recommend that you basically stay with whiskey, rum, or vodka. I've seen rum more often than not, and apparently, though, the military used rum when they ran out of whiskey. So I would recommend one of those, too. But if you don't like the brown liquors, vodka apparently works. Yeah, this sounds—I I barely even drink anymore, but I am inspired by this very soothing, sweet-sounding Christmas treat. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have one of these soon. Okay, but you should probably have it in the morning because of the first ingredient, or else you'll stay up all night. Nah, coffee didn't keep me up. So one cup Man. of cold coffee, mm-hmm. uh, a cup of half and half. <laughs> that is a lot. That's a one-to-one? One. One cup, yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, what else you got in there? Ice cream, maybe? 
Yeah, one and a half cups good vanilla ice cream, not mm. the cheap stuff. That could be vanilla bean, perhaps. So, and this is um, this is basically, uh, I, I don't know how many um, servings this makes now that I think about it, but based on the, the amount of liquor, I would guess one serving because it just calls for two ounces um, of rum, whiskey, or vodka. It actually, it says and or. <laughs> uh, and then a tablespoon of Kahlua. And you mix it all together in a bowl, whisk it until the ice cream has melted, mm. and then you put it in a cup and uh, top it off with either nutmeg or dark chocolate shavings yeah. to make it classy. I would, I would say not for the lactose intolerant. No, definitely not. And I've seen that mentioned. Like this is this is not for for you if if you are lactose intolerant. Um, but regardless of what. Um, recipe you use, whoever posts the recipe invariably mentions that if you're in the military, go ahead and double the amount of alcohol called for. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a cup of coffee, a cup of cream, <laughs> and ice cream, I think you could stand, uh, you know, a half a cup of rum. Sure. I could. Navy strength. No, wait, that's gin. Yeah, I think there's navy strength rum too, though. Oh, okay. This is, I mean, this is not too far off from a, uh, uh, one of those trendy espresso martinis. That's right. That's right, because the Just Kahlua and the coffee, yeah, really kind of make it like that. So that's kind of a fancier version. I found another one on a, um, a cooking website called With Love from Bex, B-E-X. And her recipe, apparently her husband was in the Canadian military. So I'm getting the impression that it's adapted from him. Mm-hmm. It's way easier. It's way more straightforward. And it, this is the one that your eight-year-old can make for you. Yeah, this one's got ice cream, <laughs> vanilla again, uh, and rum. But this time it's got eggnog in it. Mm-hmm. And then just a little nutmeg. That's about it. So you, But again, you just mix it all together, mix it all together, and then whip it up into a cup. And she, she uses like two liters ice cream, four liters eggnog, two liters rum, and a tablespoon of nutmeg. Obviously, this is for more than one person, I hope. <laughs> I really hope. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if our buddy, uh, our colleague Alex at work has a great tradition he does every year mm-hmm. where he makes uh, the George Washington recipe yeah. for boozy eggnog. And he makes big batches and bottles and leaves it on his front porch. And sends out the email to all of us and says, hey, it's out there again this year. Come by and get some if you want. Yeah, and he makes the nog from scratch, like oh, with yeah, eggs yeah. and everything. I've made, the, I've made the recipe with store-made eggnog, but then with brandy, I think whiskey and rum. Yeah, it's And boozy. it's really, really good. <laughs> Is it? But, I, yeah, and I've yet to have any of Alex's. I'm sure that it's just knock your socks off when it's made from scratch. And Alex has a great uh, podcast as well called Ephemeral. Mm-hmm. That we can recommend. And also, before we close, uh, I did a guest spot mm. on another iHeart show called Parenting is a Joke with oh, the great right. uh, Ophira Eisenberg of mm. uh, Aspie and Other Fame. Mm-hmm. And she's got a show with us. Our old buddy uh, Julie Smith produces it. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah. So Julie got in touch and she was like, hey, you want to be on, talk about parenting? And so I'm on an episode that has already dropped. It'll be a few weeks old by the time you hear this, mm-hmm. where I talk about uh, parenting and uh, and Ruby's adoption story. Mm-hmm. And if you stay and listen through the credits, there's a very short little 45-second interview uh, with Ruby that's adorable. Oh, that is adorable. Great plug, Chuck. So check it out. And it's a, it's a really good show. And check out Ephemeral and 
happy holidays, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Here's the part where we wish everybody happy holidays, right? I mean, I just did. Okay, well, I'm going to take it up from there. <laughs> I'm going to say Merry Christmas, Happy uh-huh. New Year. Yeah. Have a tip-top tet. Happy Hanukkah. Uh-huh. Happy Kwanzaa. Sure. Happy holidays in general, however you celebrate them. Uh, we're really glad that you hung out with us, and we hope we gave you some holiday spirit. Right, Chuck? That's right. And uh, we always like to think of our listeners who have a, a bad time this time of year because that's true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not all merriment for everyone. So if uh, the holiday seasons are rough for you, then we are thinking about you and you are not alone. And uh, we just want to wish everyone well. And uh, let's let's head into 2023 feeling good. Yeah. So from Chuck and Jerry and me and from Frank the Chair, from Dave C., from Max, from Ben, from everybody here at Stuff You Should Know, uh, have a happy holiday. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.